0: Well, Good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. Once again, it's a great day to be here to worship the Lord this morning. Let's go before Him in prayer. Father God, thank You for today and for Your grace and Your love. God, I thank You that we have this time now to gather, and I pray that You would be with us. God, that You would guide us through Your Word, that You would encourage our hearts that You would knit them together in love, and God, help us to apply Your Word to our lives. Help us to not be merely hearers, but also doers of Your Word. God, I pray that as we reflect on Your goodness and Your words to us, God, that we would remember them throughout this week and for the rest of our lives, and that we would live in light of the truths that we are about to learn. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we begin our journey into the book of Ephesians. I did a little bit of math. And at this rate, we're going to cover two verses today. At this rate, we're going to be here for about two years in the book of Ephesians. I don't think that's really going to be the case. But I wanted to kind of slow down. I didn't want to jump into verses 3 through 6 because there's some pretty heavy stuff there. And Bill had sent me a message and said, are you going to do an introduction to the book of Ephesians? Or are you going to just jump into the book of Ephesians? And initially I said, I'm just going to jump in But then I realized, as I began to study, that verses 1 and 2 really serve almost as an introduction to this book. And we're going to see how verses 1 and 2 kind of paint a picture for what lies ahead in the book of Ephesians. So with that in mind, I just want to look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, life circumstances are such that often, if we're honest with ourselves, our life circumstances are often such that we find ourselves in positions of uncertainty, aimlessness, and fear. And as I was thinking about this text this week, I couldn't help but think of the fact that oftentimes we go through life and when we forget the Gospel, when we forget what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that there's this uncertainty in our lives and that there's this sense of aimlessness that we're just kind of wandering around and we don't know really what our purpose here in life is. And there's a sense of fear. That there's the fear of the unknown and this unsettledness in our hearts. As a pastor, one of the things that Often comes to me and has come to me through the years as people saying that they're trying to discern God's will for their lives. And I think that's because of this uncertainty and this aimlessness that permeates our souls. That we want to be, we want the sense of purpose. We want to make sure that we know that God is in control and that we're claiming His promises and we want to be rest, we want to rest in Him. And we want to make sure that we are in the center of His will. And I think as we look at these first two verses, we will see that it addresses these very issues. In fact, these first two verses lay out a pattern, as I mentioned, for the rest of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, this letter, it can be divided in half like many of Paul's writings. Verse, uh, chapters 1-3, through three, dealing with gospel truth. Paul lays this foundation of the gospel, what the gospel is, what it says, what it means to us, and then in chapters four through six, the way it affects the way we live, how we are to live in light of the truth. You see, we can take Ephesians four through six and have a whole ton of instructions on how to live, but without understanding Ephesians one through three, we won't be able to do so. So as we look at today's text, we see the implications of the gospel. We see what the gospel has done for us and how we are to live in light of that. So it's a mini Ephesians, if you will, is what we will see in verses 1 and 2 today. So this letter, just by way of a little bit of background, was written by the Apostle Paul around the same time as the book of Colossians, which we studied uh, the book of Colossians some time ago. So he wrote this letter the same time he wrote the letter to the Colossians, and he did so while he was imprisoned in Rome. And this book was undoubtedly intended for the believers in Ephesus, as the first verse indicates. However, this book also seems to have been intended for a much broader audience as well this is ultimately true of all of Scripture, that the letter to the Colossians was aimed at the, Colo- the church in Colossae, but it had a broader audience, that's why we study it today, we understand that while Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, there's implications for us here and now, and as he wrote to the church in Corinth, that there's implications for us here and now, and even the same way that the book of Ephesians, this letter has implications for us here and now, but it also seems that Paul had a broader audience in mind when he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus or to the Ephesians. What I'm saying here is that with regard to this letter, this letter to the Ephesians, is that Paul actually penned it with the intent that it would be distributed to more than one church. So while many of the original manuscripts have this phrase, at Ephesus in them, I think it's important to know that some of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not have that phrase. They simply say, to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. So most of our manuscripts actually say, at Ephesus. The problem is that some don't, and the ones that don't are the oldest and really considered the most reliable manuscripts. So the question is, are the words at Ephesus, were they originally penned by Paul? Paul. Evidence of the fact that this letter was a circular letter, that it was distributed amongst many churches and not just the church in, in Ephesus, is the fact that it doesn't address specific issues. So there's not a need for a lot of background here as we begin this journey into the book of Ephesians, because there's no specific issues per se that he was addressing at the church in Ephesus, nor does he have any personal remarks. So he doesn't say, to this guy, and to this guy, and to this guy, I say this and this. And he doesn't address specific issues, but instead seems to be painting a picture for what all of us as Christians can apply and live out in our lives. So in other words, what I'm saying is this, that this book was written with the church in Ephesus in mind, but it was probably intended to be distributed as well to other churches. And that it's likely that he may not have had at Ephesus written in every single manuscript, every single version may not have had the words at Ephesus written in it. But that at some point, the version that got to Ephesus, those words were added. So while you can read about the church in Ephesus and Paul's ministry there in Acts 19, I'd encourage you to do that. But I've decided not to take our time to do so, because it seems rather likely that this letter has a much broader audience. In fact, when we studied Colossians, in Colossians 4.16, we read this. It said, when this letter is read among you, the letter to the the Colossians, have have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So it's possible, and there's no known letter from Laodicea or to the Laodiceans it's possible that this letter to the Ephesians was actually the letter that Paul was referencing in Colossians that was coming from Laodicea. So we have this idea that this letter would have circulated throughout the churches. This letter is extremely important. And I want us to really prepare our hearts as we journey through this over the coming months to see what God has for us here as we study this book. So I'd encourage you to read through the book of Ephesians. I'd encourage you to read through the book every day for the next several months as we work through it. It's six quick chapters. Just read through it and let God work in your heart as you understand the truth of what Paul was saying to the churches of his day. So regardless of whether this letter was directed specifically at the church in Ephesus or a number of churches in the region, it is clear that it has implications for us and it has implications for the church regardless of geography or time in history. So with that in mind, let's dig right into our text and look at verse 1. It begins with this. He says, "Paul, an apostle, the, the term apostle simply means sent one, one who is sent by God, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, that he's sent by God to represent Christ, the Messiah, and he sent by the will of God. That God and His sovereign will determined that Paul would be sent out. That he would be a representative, an ambassador, if you will, for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would present the Gospel. So after introducing himself, we see the first point in our sermon outline, the first point in our outline is, number one, the Christian's promise. Number one, the Christian's promise. Paul says in verse 1, After introducing himself, he says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul calls his recipients saints. The word saint simply means holy one. And it refers to those who have been set apart, those who have been sanctified, i.e. set apart. And the word saint is simply meant to point to followers of Christ. Every follower of Christ is a saint. And you may say, well, clearly you don't know who I am, Pastor, because if there's anything I'm not, it's a saint. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what you are. You are wholly set apart for the Lord. You may not always live in light of that reality, as I don't always live in light of that reality, but that is exactly what God has made you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Him. You're set apart, positionally holy. Unfortunately, many people's understanding of what it means to be a saint is completely skewed. In fact, you've probably heard of the Catholic Church canonizing saints. This past week, I read the following from a Catholic website, and I don't want to belabor this, but I do think it's important for us to understand what this term saint means in light of Scripture and what how it's used by others. On the site it said, how does the church choose saints? First of all, the church doesn't choose saints. God chooses saints. But nonetheless, the site, this Catholic website said, how does the church choose saints? And it said, canonization, the process the church uses to name a saint, has only been used since the 10th century. For hundreds of years, starting with the first martyrs of the early Christian church, saints were chosen by public acclaim. Though this was more of a democratic way to recognize saints, some saint stories were distorted by legend and some never existed. And gradually, it says, the bishops and finally the Vatican took authority for approving saints. So at one time, the people declared who was a saint, and then at another time, the church finally said, no, we're going we're to declare who's a saint, Neither one of which was right, by the way, because God declares who is a saint. In 1983, it goes on and says, Pope John Paul II made sweeping changes in the canonization procedure. The process begins after the death of a Catholic whom people regard as holy. Often the process starts many years after the death in order to give perspective on the candidate. The local bishop investigates the candidate's life and writings for heroic virtue or martyrdom, and orthodoxy of doctrine. Then, a panel of theologians at the Vatican evaluates the candidate. After approval by the panel and cardinals of the congregation for the causes of the saints, the Pope proclaims the candidate as venerable. The next step requires evidence of one miracle, except in the case of martyrs, those who are killed for their faith. They don't need a miracle because they've been martyred for their faith. He says, some miracle, since miracles are considered proof that the person is in heaven and can intercede for us. I hope you're catching all of the craziness that is in this. The miracle must take place after the candidate's, must take place after the candidate's death and as a result of a specific petition to the candidate. So you pray to the candidate, a miracle takes place and you go, aha, the candidate's in heaven. Clearly they are a saint. When the Pope proclaims the candidate beatified or blessed, the person can be venerated by a particular region or group of people with whom the person holds special importance. Finally, it says, "Only after one more miracle will the Pope canonize the saint. This includes martyrs as well. The title of Saint the title of Saint tells us that the person lived a holy life is in heaven and is to be honored by the universal church canonization does not make a person a saint. It recognizes what God has already done. Out of all of that, there's one thing that I agree with. And that is, canonization doesn't make a person a saint. Instead, God is the one who makes someone a saint. You see, Scripture points to the fact that we are, as followers of Christ, if you are following Jesus, you are a saint. You are set apart. kind of teaching that the Catholic Church teaches completely misrepresents what the New Testament teaches about sainthood. Listen to the way the New Testament uses the term saints. Philippians 4, verses 21-22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. These are not dead people performing miracles. These are believers. All believers. Every saint in Christ Jesus. All the saints greet you. Those who are set apart for Christ, Ephesians 4, And He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Not those who have died and gone to heaven or are some super class of Christians, but the church, those who are set apart for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. You see, when the New Testament uses the term saint, it is speaking of genuine followers of Jesus. And it does not refer to some special class of Christians, but instead to all Christians. So when Paul says in verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, he is speaking of all believers, all who are set apart as followers of Christ. But notice also that he says that they are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he says they're saints and they're faithful in Christ Jesus. Now this is where we need to be careful. Paul is not saying that because they are faithful, they are saints. Instead, what he is saying is that their sainthood, the fact that they've been set apart, has enabled them to be faithful. So he's saying, it's not because they're faithful that they're set apart, but because they've been set apart, they're faithful, and that is the truth of the Christian life, that your works don't save you, but as you are set apart for Christ, as you are set apart as a follower of Christ, that you begin to honor the Lord with your life, that you are faithful. But this word also, we think of this term "faithful," and we think of a man being faithful to his wife or a wife being faithful to her husband, but that's not the way in which this word is used here. The way this word is used here is that of being full of faith. Paul is saying that because they are set apart, they are able to be full of faith. In other words, because they have been set apart, they can have faith that God will continue to set them apart. He will continue to sanctify them. That He will make them holy. You see, every believer is positionally holy at the time of salvation. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to set us free from the law of sin and death. That's what Romans teaches. Romans 8, 1 says this. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, that God accomplished the keeping of the law through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that that was imputed to us as righteousness. That's why Hebrews 10.14 says, "...for by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." Those who are set apart. Those who are saints. By one offering, He made you set apart a saint. Not by your doing, but by Christ's doing. See, Scripture therefore is clear that every believer is sanctified, declared holy in Christ Jesus. But it's also clear that we are being sanctified. We are set apart. Therefore, we must be set apart. And God will continue to set us apart. First Peter makes this clear. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ in First Peter 1, 1 says this, "...to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus..." They were set apart so that we might obey Jesus. And he goes on and says, "Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the Lord Jesus Christ, but be, and be holy." He says, "You've been set apart, you've been set apart by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, so fix your hope on the grace that's going to be brought to you in the, at the revelation of Christ, and be holy. You have been set apart, so set yourself apart and be holy. You see, we have been sanctified, and we can fix our hope completely on the fact that God and His grace will continue to set us apart and continue to make us holy. See, the gospel offers promise. Just as Paul called the believers to whom he was writing some 2,000 years ago, both saints and faithful, so also we are saints And we are called to be full of faith. That we are called to be saints. And we are called to trust that He will continue to set us apart. That He will carry through to completion the work that He started in us. His work, by the way, and our fixing our hope on His grace go hand in hand. It's not that we step back and we go, Well, God's going to make me holy, therefore I'm just waiting for it to happen. Instead, we fix our hope, Peter says, on the grace that's going to be brought to us. So we cry out to God and we say, God, I need grace! And we fight for holiness. We pursue holiness. We know that it's only by His grace, but we fix our hope on Him as we do so. That it's an active faith. It's not a passive faith. Where you just sit back and go, well, God made me holy positionally. He's going to make me holy in reality. Instead, we contend for the faith. We live out our faith in very real ways. So having seen the Christian promise, number one, the Christian's promise that because you have been set apart, you can trust that God will continue to set you apart, that He will finish His work in you. Now let's consider the Christian's purpose. The Christian's purpose. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, "...to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus." Paul reminds his readers that they are in Christ. However, it's important to note that while they're in Christ, they're still at Ephesus. And regardless of where this was read, you could add at Laodicea or at South Thomaston. That while they are in Christ, they're still at Ephesus. That is that while they've been given this new life in Christ, He hasn't taken them out of the world. But called them to live for Him within this world. Surely we've all heard the phrase, in the world, but not of the world. David Mathis makes the point, and I think he's right in doing so, makes the point in saying that we, we say this as though it were some unfortunate set of circumstances that kept us here. That we live as though we say, well, I'm in the world, but I'm, of, I'm not of the world, but I'm in the world. Like, unfortunately, I'm still here. Like it's some accident, And that we're waiting for something more. And yes, we do wait for heaven. We hope for the glory of heaven. But we have a purpose here and now. Mathis goes on to say that we would be better to say, not of the world, but sent into the world. So we're not of this world, but we are sent into it. That He has us here for a purpose. That fits with John 17, verses 14-21. through Listen to the words... There of Jesus. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Right? So we're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Jesus said, I'm not asking you, Father, to take the believers out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one while they are in the world. He goes on and says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart. In the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I have sent them into this world as those who are set apart. He goes on and says, For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified, set apart, saints in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one even as you father and i you are even as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me so he says i didn't i'm not asking you father to take him out of the world but I've sent them into the world, and I've sent them into the world as those who are set apart, those who are sanctified, those who are called to be holy, and I've done this so that others may believe that You sent me, Father. See, the point is that the Gospel not only offers promise, but it also gives us purpose that the reality of the Gospel is that because we are in Christ doesn't mean that we're taken out of this world, but we're in this world for a purpose. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, the life we've been given in Christ is not to be squandered. It's not to be wasted. But instead, to be lived with purpose. Yes, we are still in this world. But more importantly, we are in Christ. And we are called to live as those who are set apart for Him. So what does this living for the Lord exactly look like? What exactly is our purpose? And that's what we need to ask. In Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus gives us pretty clear instructions. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, make disciples, teach them, baptize them, help them to know who I am, knowing that I am with you. I am sending you into the world as those who are set apart and know that you are in me and I am in you, is what Jesus was telling His disciples. So our purpose is to make disciples, is to call people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our purpose also, one of the great purposes of the Christian life is seen in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it for God's glory. So we're left in this world, but we're left here with a purpose. We're left here to serve as ambassadors for Christ and to glorify Him. So we've seen the Christian's promise that because we have been set apart, because we are saints, we can trust that He will continue to set us apart, that He will finish the work that He started in us. And number two, because that we've, we've been given purpose, that because we are in Christ, we're called to live for Him and for His glory. Let's consider thirdly the Christian's peace. So we have promise, we have purpose, and we also thirdly have peace. Look at verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word peace carries this idea of tranquility and rest. It's the opposite of fear. Thus, it's referring to what we might sometimes refer to or call inner peace. Not necessarily relational peace. When we think of the term peace, we think of what just happened with North Korea and South Korea, right? That there's this peace treaty or this this agreement between parties... And that is what the gospel provides, by the way. It provides peace between us and God. But what Paul is speaking of here is this inner peace, this tranquility that's the result of the peace we have with God. That though we declared war on God and said, no, I will be God, and we sinned against Him, that He died, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins that we might be rescued. And He broke down that wall of division between us and Him, He made us at peace with Him, that because of that, we can now live in peace. So here's the way that plays out. If you're living in um, South Korea, right, you may have said, well, we've been at peace for a long time. We're not at war. But there's no inner peace when you've got your neighbor to the north who is constantly threatening to annihilate other countries. But when that peace comes between north and south, then there's this inner tranquility. Finally, we can rest. And that's the way the believer is called to live, in a spirit of rest and tranquility, because we are now at peace with God. This is precisely what 1 John 4, verses 15 through 18 is talking about. There we read this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That... God is in Him and He is in God. That He is in Christ. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. He is in Christ. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence that we know the promise, that there's promise for us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world that we're given purpose, that we have confidence, we have promise, that we're in this world, we have purpose in this world. Verse 18 there is no fear in love, there is peace. But perfect love casts out fear. See, there's this idea in John, 1 John 4, that God is in us and we are in God, that there's this oneness and we have. Confidence in God's promises. And though we are in this world, we know that we have purpose in this world. And therefore, we have no fear. We are at peace with what God has for us. You see, as followers of Christ, we do not live with a spirit of fear. We don't need to live that way. For we know that the Lord is for us and not against us. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. That's what Isaiah says. Or Matthew 10, 29-31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than sparrows. Or in Romans 8, probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how we ought to pray as we should. That there are times of uncertainty and we are not sure how we should pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He searches our hearts, and we know, as He searches our hearts, He reminds us, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And He's going to make us more like Jesus day by day. And then He says in Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, will He not also in Him, with Him, freely give us all things? What He's saying is this. God didn't withhold His own Son. Clearly, He's going to give you good gifts. Clearly, He's going to bless you. Remember His promises. Live a life of purpose, knowing that God causes all things to work together for good, and experience peace, knowing that God sent His Son to die for you. So by way of review, we've seen the Christians promise that because you've been set apart, you can trust God you can trust that God will continue to set you apart, that He will finish the work that He started in you. And because you are in Christ, you are called to live for Him. We see not only the Christian promise, but the Christian's purpose. We're called to live for Him and for His glory. And then thirdly, the Christian's peace. Because of His grace, we can live a life of peace. Knowing and trusting God. So we have these pieces of the first two verses in the book of uh, Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful. That though we, that we've been called, we've been set apart, and we're full of faith that God will continue to set us apart. That we are at Ephesus, but we're in Christ jesus that while we are in this world more importantly we are in christ and that because of god's grace we know that we can live a life of peace you see there's implications of the gospel the gospel points to the way we are to live it's not just about a future in heaven but how we live now So having seen the Christian's promise, the Christian's purpose, and the Christian's peace, the question is, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately specifically, apply all of this to our lives? Well, I began by saying that life circumstances are such that we often find ourselves in positions of uncertainty or aimlessness or fear. That we're not sure how we are to live. We're not sure where God is directing us. We're not sure if all of this is all for naught. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I begin to think, what am I doing? Is any of this even worth living Living for? I get up in the morning, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed. I get up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed. And I, sometimes I feel like we're just on this treadmill called life. And it's in those moments that I realize I've forgotten the gospel. That God has called me as a saint. That He has set me apart and that He's going to continue to make me holy. And in the moments when I struggle and I fall, I forget that God's going to continue the work in me. That He's promised that. That there is gospel promise. But that there's gospel purpose. That I am called to live for Him and for His glory even in this world. That yes, I am in South Thomaston or Walderboro or wherever. But more importantly, I am in Christ, and therefore I can live in peace. I can trust Him. You see, the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Christ changes everything. We've been given unfathomable riches in Christ. For in Him we need not live with a spirit of uncertainty, but we can rest fully in His promises knowing that He's going to carry us through to completion. In Him, we we need not live a life of aimlessness, but we can live a life of purpose as we seek to honor Him and live for His glory. And in Him, we need not live a life of fear, but we can live a life of peace, knowing that His grace is sufficient for us and that we can rest in His continued provision of future grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. God, I thank you for an opportunity to reflect on your promise, your promises in your word, God, that you will carry us through to completion, that the gates of hell will not overcome the power of the church. God, that, that instead the church will storm the gates of hell. God, I thank you for the purpose that You have given us in this world. God, that You did not call us out of this world, but you instead you, call, you sent us into the world to be ambassadors, to be representatives for You here. God, I thank You for the peace that is ours. God, knowing that because You did not withhold Your own Son, that You will freely give us all good things because of the grace bestowed on us. God, that we can trust and rest in You and have that ultimate peace. God, may we remember your grace. May we remember your purpose for us. And may we remember your promise to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name.